What's up, everyone? This is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to episode 31 of the Hashishin, brought to you by Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game. You can visit them at rosinevolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. Today, we have a powerful episode. We get to hear from Taylor of T. Beasel Farms and Little Lake Valley Seed Co. We discuss his experience of growing up in the cannabis culture of the Emerald Triangle, including his family's humble beginnings there. He also shared with us how cannabis itself helped him overcome a lot of personal trauma and adversity while giving us some insight into how cannabis has shifted in the area from being illegal to medical and is slowly turning into an industry. So definitely stay tuned for that. A big shout out to the folks who helped make this happen, our community on Patreon. That I'm able to spend so much of my time directing energy towards this project is not only humbling, but amazing and definitely a bit unreal. And I'm incredibly thankful to every single person who's ever contributed to the platform in any way, and especially to those who are part of our community on Patreon. Thank you. We just dropped a web series episode with Robbie Green Thumbs, which you'll find exclusively on the Patreon, along with an additional 11 web interviews. So if you're out of material to listen to and you want more, check us out at patreon.com backslash the hashish in that's the hashish inn or use the link in our Instagram bio. A big shout out to another reason that we're able to keep bringing you the podcast, our sponsors, including our main sponsor, Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game, both for pressing your hash and for washing it. Their full mesh wash bags are the best deal on the wash bag market. They're made of the same high quality, accurate, reliable nylon that their high quality rosin bags are made of. So go pick up all things rosin at rosinevolution.com or visit them on Instagram at rosinevolution100 and use our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710, that's THI710. It saves you 5% on your entire Rosin Evolution order. Shout out to our homies Powers Plates, the small batch rosin press company. If you're looking for a rosin press, specifically the highest grade rosin press on the market, then visit Powers at powersplates.com. That's P-O-W-E-R-S plates.com. Not only do they make their systems from the highest quality components on the market, like their MaxiWatt custom temp sensor that learns your patterns of use to help keep your rosin plates at a consistent and stable pressing temp throughout each individual press and throughout your work cycle. They also offer you a great selection of anodized finishes from their classic gold bars look to their unique splatter designs. So not only do you get the highest grade rosin press on the market with the set of power plates, you get the nicest and sleekest press on the market as well. Their pro kits include a set of platens that provide you a four by eight working area, as well as a Pelican case that serves the dual purpose of housing your PID controller and also a nifty way to store or travel with your rosin press. For those of you who already own a set of power plates but love the new looks that they're putting out, they do sell the plates separately as well. They recently knocked off $100 off their pro kits and you can save an additional $75 with our exclusive savings code, the letters THI standing for the hashish in. So save $175 on the highest grade rosin press on the market at powersplates.com. Shout out to Six Star Society, your solventless apparel company. If you want to show your love for hash, Six Star Society has all the gear you need to show your passion for the hash. And even if you're not making hash like myself, they have super comfortable options to lounge, like some of my favorites, their full melt joggers and their hash gym hoodies. 
So check them out at Six Star Society. That's sixstarsociety.com. They have a killer sale going on on some of their most popular designs, including their water-resistant single-source jacket. And you can save an additional 5% by using our savings code, the letters THI. So grab all the gear you need to show your love for the resin at sixstarsociety.com. And last but never least, shout out to the homies Pele Polare, keeping vessels colder for longer with their high quality thermal jacketing systems. This summer has been a hot one everywhere, but the West Coast is getting hit hard, yet the work goes on. So if you need help in battling condensation this summer or ever, visit our homies Pele Polare at pelepolareco.com. Check out the variety of tools that they carry to make your life as a hash maker easier from high grade stainless steel vessels to their thermal jacketing systems. You can also visit them on Instagram at Pele underscore Polare and use our savings code, the letters THI, to save 5% on your entire order. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 31 of the Hashishian. I'm your host, Sharag Mamir. Today, I am really excited to be here with Taylor of T. Beasel Farms and Little Lake Valley Seed Co. You can follow him on Instagram at T. Beasel Farms or at Little Lake Valley Seed Co. What's up, dude? Thanks for taking the time to talk. Thank you, brother. It's a pleasure to be here. An honor. Yeah, it's a, we were talking the first time and I was totally tripped out. You're like, oh, how do you know? you know, who I am or the brand or whatever. And I'm like, dude, you know, I, I'm, I think I scooped some stuff from you back at an Emerald cup in like 15 or 16, maybe uh, <laughs> around that time. Yeah. And you were laughing and, but yeah, it's, it's a trip that people even know what's up with the podcast. And you told me that you listen to it and stuff and it always trips me out. So, so yeah, I appreciate you coming on, man. Yeah, no, I uh, very much listen to it. I've listened to quite a few episodes. It's a nice thing to listen to when I'm working in the garden. And yeah, no, it's just always very humbling when anybody says, says that they know me or heard of me or have actually got products from me before. It's always a very, very, you know, very grounding and humbling thing for me. I never take it for granted. One of the things that you said to me was that, you know, you're Taylor and you're not the brand. So like, you know, if people see you in person or whatever, you're not T. Beasel, but you're Taylor. Yeah, I always try to stress that to people. Some people have actually met me before and then found out I was, you know, T. Beasel later on and said, oh, wow, you know what? I can't believe you didn't say something. And I always say that, you know, that T. Beasel, that's just a, a character, you know, it's something I made up in order to like, you know, have a selling point for a company. It's not who I am. I try not to get lost in the company and the scene and everything about it. You know, I'm a human being. I have a name and, you know, I have feelings I hurt just like anybody else. Yeah, no, I thought it was a good uh, and interesting point, man. And, you know, I always like to talk to guys that are from the NorCal area because even though there's a lot of people up there, it seems like there's not like a ton of people that have like deep roots in there, which it definitely sounded like you do. So can you tell us a little bit about like your family's beginning there? Yeah, yeah. My family came here uh, very long ago. Great-grandmother moved in here. I was born in the Kosick Dist Hospital. It's over in Fort Bragg, California, December 10th, 1985. You know, I, we have uh, three generations here. 
my sister's kids and I and my kids will be a fourth generation uh, from the county. Wasn't always cannabis in the family. Cannabis didn't start until like mm, 65, 66, like the actual like growing, growing of it. Um, there's always people just doing like little personal stuff of the stories that I heard. But my family around here, uh, my grandmother was a janitor at the local schools for a long time back in the day. A lot of my family did logging. A lot of my family did a lot of the mill work around here. And uh, there was a, a big uh, flourishing community here uh, in the Willits Valley. And uh, with the enterprise leaving, with industry leaving, logging leaving, you know, this area was very remote. So there wasn't a lot of jobs left. And uh, that's where my family started taking up cannabis growing as like a, as a thing not to get get recognition or any notice. Actually, they didn't want anybody to know what they were doing. It was a way so us kids could get Christmas presents. We could have food to eat. It was a, it was a means of survival, basically. And that's something that I wanted to touch on because you were saying last time that, and I'm putting words in your mouth, but there's almost like, there's a bit of a kind of romantic vibe to the story of people growing cannabis in these times and, and risking really everything, like you said, uh, for, for basic needs or, or for survival and not for, you know, looking for being necessarily the, the carriers of this plant. Although I'm sure there was a level of respect to it as well. Uh, yes, 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 of course. Um, this, there, there's always been this, secretiveness about the plant up here and it's just recently in the last i would say decade where people have become more and more you know open about it and what they're doing and you know more outspoken even about like the clothing that they wear out in public the images that it has on it and stuff you know but before that people were, were not trying to talk about stuff up here and uh yeah, this area, cannabis is old up here. So the whole romantic thing about it is the whole Emerald Triangle. You know, uh, I come from Willits, California. That's Mendocino County. That's the southern tip of the Emerald Triangle. And uh, this area forever, forever, people have been coming in and out of here and getting cannabis for whatever reason that they're getting it for. And it is for decades and decades had a reputation of producing high quality stuff that people could have access to. Yeah, I think you used the word uh, clandestine last time when it came to referencing, you know, what the culture was like. And I asked you about, for example, someone not from the area trying to move there. And you were like, look, you know, it basically was not possible unless you were vouched for by a local per se. So can you tell me a little bit about kind of these cultural shifts? Although you said that one of the good things about now is like, it's bringing more cultural variety into the area as well. Yeah. So this area was real. Um, I'm just going to, I'm just going to keep it real with you. You know, I was raised by a bunch of, you know, hillbilly racist redneck people. And uh, a lot of my family's from Mississippi. But uh, I definitely uh, do not share those point of views. But this is how I know a lot about those types of people because I was raised by them. And uh, see, the, these times that I talk about, 
being clandestine and, you know, you weren't necessarily allowed to move in here. These, these are times before I was born. But these, these times back in those days, this was really wild, remote, especially when you left town and you got outside in these dirt roads and these hills. I mean, it's dangerous. There's no police. It'll, it takes sheriffs sometimes hours to get to you. And, uh, you know, the people that sold the properties knew the realtors. The realtors were interviewing the people getting the properties. So, you know, if you weren't in the loop, you know, you weren't allowed to get one of these properties outside of town that were in some of these prominent growing areas, you know, like Pine Mountain, Spy Rock, Rattlesnake Canyon. You know, there, there's, you know, multiple, multiple areas. You got Highway 20 to Three Chop or Mokel Road. There's all these areas where like, you know, you just couldn't go buy a house. But now with the shift of people being more relaxed and it's, it's great, you know, you get more restaurants, you know, and, and, you know, I say that loosely, Willis does not have anything sort of a restaurant selection, (laughs) but hopefully with the more culture that's being brought in the more acceptance and the more people wanting to grow cannabis, hopefully we can get, you know, more stuff going on up here. It would be nice. And having been raised in this cannabis culture and being exposed to it, essentially, it sounds like from very early on, what's your feelings towards cannabis itself? You know, cannabis uh, is very old here. It's been in my family for a while. I grew up helping my older cousins and my mom's older brother, you know, learning how to make coffer dams, learning how to find springs out in the woods. You know, all this stuff now that fish and game will kill you for. <laughs> but, you know, this is this was the way, you know, back in the day. And, uh, you know, my relationship with cannabis formed uh, sort of early on. It came from basically a lot of trauma that I experienced early long in my life, in my childhood. From the age of five to 12, I was sexually molested and raped by one of my older cousins. That's a male. And that's where my adventure with cannabis started. It was a way to heal. It was a way to, I had seen in my family what alcohol could do to people. You know, there was a lot of methamphetamine use going back to me saying I was raised by a bunch of degenerate redneck people. Their substance abuse necessarily wasn't hidden from children. So I learned from that and cannabis spoke to me. It, it uh, kept me from doing self-harming. It kept, kept me from wanting to do all the negative stuff to where, you know, people that hurt, people that have pain that went through the things I go through experience. And uh, cannabis helped me to become not a bad person. And it showed me a way through life that I could not only make it, but I could make it and be happy. Yeah, you called cannabis a goddess that was in a way kind of yes. within this plant, you know, and, and has these types of deep healing abilities, because obviously that's like some real, real deep. Cannab- cannabis stuff, to me you know? is an entity. It is a goddess and it disguises itself in the plant form. 
And it only comes to you when you smoke it or ingest it or any way that you consume the plant. But it disguises itself as the plant because if this entity were to come to you in its form, in its goddess form, our feeble human mind that has been so de-evolved through our just existence of pain through centuries wouldn't accept it. We would discard it as a hallucination. We would discard it as something that isn't real. And most of us wouldn't accept it. So most of us that come to this kind of spiritual realization and come to this connection with cannabis, it speaks to us and we listen to that entity and goddess and it helps guide us. So when your relationship changed with the plant, how did your awareness change when it came to tending it? A lot of the people that were growing cannabis up here, and this was before a lot of the, you know, talk about organics and living soil and these sort of things. People up here were desperate. You know, like I said, these people were trying to survive up here and they were trying to make money. And they were using, you know, grow more, all of these like really industrial like chemical fertilizers for growing their cannabis because one, it's cheap, two, it's easy, and three, you actually get a product that you can sell. And so these people, you know, kept doing it and kept doing it. I started making friends with some people that knew about organics and they started like showing me that like, you know, you don't need to go buy all these like crazy chemical fertilizers, you know, you can grow this way. And they started showing me uh, books to read and started, you know, I've started going to uh, seminars and that kind of stuff. There's actually a, a very famous guy who lives here in Willits. His name is John Jevons. Wrote this book, How to Grow More Vegetables. And he has this place uh, here in Pine Mountain where he takes uh, students from all around the world and teaches them how to grow their own food sustainably. So when they go back to their own country, they don't have to be so dependent or have a lack of resources of anything. Um, The place up in Pine Mountain is called Ecology Action. Oh, his uh, method of growing is called biointensive. So the biointensive method of agriculture is invented by him. He lives here and he does uh, seminar before COVID. Of course, he was doing all sorts of seminars, all sorts of things. And, uh, he is just a plethora of knowledge on how to uh, grow organically and sustainably and regeneratively. Yeah, that's cool, man. And so once you started using some of these practices and moving away from, you know, the more artificially kind of base salt nutrients, what did you start seeing in the plants? Uh, Well, at first when you start organics, it's a little like, uh, the transition's a little difficult. Sometimes your quality and your, you know, just structure actually kind of goes down a little bit. Um, but once you get the hang of it, it starts coming back. Um, but what I noticed the most out of what happened is what I was talking about, the overall quality of the herb, the overall stoniness of it let's just say the narcotic-like effects of the cannabis, which is something that modern-day cannabis has almost sort of bred out. 
we're in sort of this terpene rich uh, lifestyle where people have so specifically bred for terpenes and certain flavors that those narcotic like strong effects of cannabis have been bred out. And uh, in my observation, most people that smoke cannabis don't want those narcotic like effects anyways, because they've been so accustomed to the terp profiles of plants and they're kind of going after, they want something to taste good. They don't care how stoned it gets them. And uh, I noticed when you start going back to the more, uh, let's just say the way earth wants you to grow cannabis, the more natural, the more organic, regenerative and living soils, the more you can bring out that effect of the plant. The more, in my opinion, the more it's trying to speak to you. And I'm assuming that the majority of these settings were outdoor or at least like hoop house style. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, the majority of stuff that I'm coming into contact with and doing with friends and partners is hoop houses and outdoor up here, but there is definitely a few of the indoors as well. Most people are very timid to do organics indoors and living soil and that sort of stuff. But, um, there's facilities uh, like 710 labs that are running large scale regenerative living soil rooms and are just finding incredible results out of them. Yeah. It is interesting to see, man, like it's kind of like a modern adaptation to, to growing. They're still growing indoors, but you are using a lot of these, uh, I guess, more, more natural methods of, of growing. And seeing the results in that is always interesting. And, you know, going back to the idea of having your family in this area for a while, and I know this is before your time, but you mentioned to me that your uncle, who was kind of like maybe the youngest or one of the hipper ones that was going down to San Francisco to catch dead shows and whatnot, started figuring out that, well, hey, you know, if you have a certain kind of weed or certain kind of genetics that nobody else has, then that's typically good for business. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, back in the day when cannabis was being grown and sold up here, there, there wasn't OG Kush. There wasn't sour diesel. There wasn't any of this stuff. A lot of the cannabis being grown around here was being brought back by uh, the soldiers from Vietnam. So when they were going across Southeast Asia and all these places, they were, you know, most of these guys were bringing back seeds with them. Um, a lot of people were growing seeds. A lot of people didn't understand what phenotypes were. So they would just bust out a bunch of seeds. They would pick out the males. And then they thought, oh, just because I grew this seed, now I have, you know, 30 plants that's this. Well, you, you have, technically you do, but you might have up to, you know, eight, nine, ten phenotypes, you know, <laughs> if you haven't selectively bred it. My, that was my mom's littlest brother. His name's John. And he, yeah, he in the uh, mid seventies and late seventies would go down and catch the dead shows, Pink Floyd shows. And he would bring down some of the cannabis that was being grown here. And he would meet people, you know, from Michigan people, you know, cause dead tours and all these tours attract people from all over the country. So he'd meet fellow stoners that would have good shit. Well, back in that day, most people's stuff had a couple seeds or maybe a little more than a couple seeds. Right. So my uncle would, trade them bags uh, to grab some of their seeds. And most of the time he said people would just give him seeds. 
So just based upon him being just a straight, one of the old school, real deal stoners now, like to him, wasn't like about money. It wasn't about trying to use grow more on a plant. You know, he was the one that taught me that, you know, this plant is special. And so he started taking the seeds. We had seeds he'd gather in shows and he'd start popping them, crossing this to that. And he really didn't know what he was doing. Uh, he just wanted to, you know, smoke something the best because he said, oh, this person's stuff was strong. Mine's strong. If you cross two strong things together, there's a potential you'll get something super strong. Very rudimentary train of thought, but you got to remember this is the 70s and this is cannabis. There was not a lot of information out here about this kind of stuff. And so he made a bunch of these crosses and he grew them. And I guess some of them came out being pretty nice. So back in those days, November, December comes in time, that's harvest time. So back in those days, like for decades and decades after that, buyers come into town looking for cannabis. And it's basically back then, everyone had just the same shit. It was just hill weed. It was just a bunch of seeds growing, a bunch of wild, you know. Um, so my uncle started popping these seeds and giving them to people. And then all of a sudden, people had like something no one else had. And then they could ask for a higher price from these buyers. Right, yeah. And then these buyers were like, we'll come back into town the next year. And they're like, hey, you got more of that, right? And see, they were just popping seeds, popping seeds, popping seeds, right? So a lot of these things went extinct because they didn't know about taking cuts. They didn't know about cloning yet. So that's where you hear about a lot of fabled stories of, oh, there, there was this one strain back in the day and it was so good and I never saw it again. Yeah, it's because no one was taking clones back then. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's funny to think of, man. But yet, I think a lot of that work probably eventually became building blocks for a lot of the stuff that, you know, is still in genetics today, you know, to some degree. And another couple things that you told me that tripped me out were that, A, weed wasn't really untrimmed until a certain time or like trimmed at all. It was just kind of sold. So you know. my, my dad said until about 78, to eight, he said right around 80 is when hardcore trimming started coming around. But he said in like in the mid 70s and late 70s, they sold it by one one finger, two finger, and three finger lids. And that's your fingers pressed up against the side of a sandwich bag. And right. you would you would get buds and they would be untrimmed. And most of the time, it would have some seeds in it as well, because people weren't so proactive about trying to find nails, or your neighbor wasn't proactive about trying to find nails. So he said, "Yeah, like back in the day, you know that that that's that's why when my dad started, uh, I started bringing home and showing him all these fancy buds, all trimmed and these you know these crazy colors. He was like, this is insane.' He goes, we didn't even trim it back in the day. <laughs> like of course, you knock off the big water leaf and stuff, but there was no fine manicuring. Yeah, yeah. And the other point you brought up about this people not taking care of their males is like, it didn't become a trend until funny enough. I think you mentioned like maybe through like reggae or something, people started hearing about this, like Sinsamia 
and people started isolating females from males at a certain point. Yeah, yeah. You had a lot. So that that was also something that started in like the early 70s and stuff from the influence of reggae music because this area, even though there's a lot of redneck yahoos up here, there's also a big culture of hippies up here. And they're, you know, reggae on the river music festival was up here for forever and ever. Wavy Gravy that followed the Grateful Dead. He has the hog farm. He did concerts forever up here, like Earth Dance and the old picnics and all that kind of stuff. So it's these people that knew about these from being cultured and traveling that actually taught the poor redneck people that I come from these techniques. Yeah, that's funny, man. You know, and I'm curious to you, like during your era, what were some of the most memorable strains that you saw kind of growing up or once it became a thing? Well, I was, see, I'm born in 85. So I didn't start smoking weed till I was like 14 or 15. So, you know, the the, the, the strings I grew up with is Sour Diesel, all these OG, like, you know, the original, original OG Kushas from LA, those real deal ones. Um, There was no cookies yet. There was no gelatos yet and sherbets and all these, like, you know, what we, they coin exotics now, you know? Or I don't, I'm sorry, exotics is an old term. They call it Zaza now. So I, I, you know, and, and a lot of the weed that I was experiencing up here, like I said, a lot of people have been crossbreeding stuff for a long time up here. So people have like some of their own stuff. You know, you hear crazy names like Purple Dragon Toe and Midnight Princess Flyer and like, you know, all this just crazy shit people make up, you know. But I have to admit, some of it was really good. But if we're talking name brand strains, when I started smoking growing up, I would say, uh, Bubba Kush, uh, the OGs, the Sours, Headband, the ones that were also big that people hate on now, but back in that time, people actually grew them and smoked them was Blue Dream and Green Crack and uh, Snowcap, you know, the, these types of uh, grower-friendly strength. Yeah, they definitely seem to have their purpose. They did well outdoors and they seem to do well in numbers, which is something that you and I talked about last time is that people, I mean, maybe still, but before for sure it was, it was for weight only. Oh yeah. Yeah. There was no, for a while, unless you knew somebody that actually cared and was trying to grow the stuff that was for potency and taste, most big farms were growing strictly for weight. Because it didn't matter. Buyers would come in and they would buy that. So why would they try to waste their time growing something that's finicky, hard to grow? Only a few people want to buy and maybe they'll buy it, you know? Right. Yeah, it, it all, wasn't commercially it all, viable. Well, it all goes back to necessity and survival. You know, they weren't growing cannabis because of a connection. They're growing cannabis for money, you know? Which... You know, it's a respect. It's a respect thing. It's a point. You know, a, a, a lot of us, a lot of us aren't where we are, where we should be, because we don't respect. You know, it's it's not the thing that blows you up. 
It's the relationship you have to the thing that blows you up. You know, when you, when you have a certain level of honor, when you have a certain level of respect, when something's sacred to you, you, you handle it different. Like whether you, whether you know it or not, you know, and you know, the, the level of where you are and whatever you choose to do in your life um, is based upon your respect level, like period. Every day I wake up before I go to work with this plant, you know, I'm like, okay, okay. Keith Stroop, got it. Margaret Mead, got it. Jack Carrere, got it. You, you, you know, that that's the respect. I'm not doing this for money. I'm doing this because of my predecessors. You know, I'm not doing this for, for, for fame. I'm doing this because of the struggle, you know? So every time I go to work, there's a certain level of honor and respect I have for this plant. You know, I see, I see uh, little kids on IG talking about how they're going to start doing this and start a company and this and that so they can get a Lambo. A Lambo? And you don't respect our predecessors if you're doing this for a car. Are you kidding me? You're doing this for a car? They sell cars. You're doing this for a house? They sell houses. They don't sell Jack Carrere's spirit. They don't sell Margaret Mead's spirit. They don't sell Keith Stroop's spirit. That's a level of honor and that is a level of respect. And going back to what we talked about earlier in these cultural shifts, do you think that's just a cultural thing? It's just a thing of an era of respect or do you think it's something that can go from person to person? I just think a lot of people are doing it. Uh, you know, don't get it wrong. I have a nice house. I have a nice car. And I, I don't want to get it twisted. I do try to make money. But the thing is, is a lot of people are doing it to try to make money. You know, I started this out of what I just stated before. You know, I don't do it for money. Those things came, you know, through, through, through decades of hard work and not giving up on myself and determination and discipline. You know, if you just start out this and you're trying to do it for those, you don't, you don't respect the people that came before us, you know, because the people who came before us, those people I mentioned, like Margaret Mead, they didn't do it for money. You know, we are where we are because people gave their heart and soul to something they believed in. And it wasn't about money for them. So, you know, that's why I do what I do, because I respect this craft. And you brought up your dad and you said he was an educator and that your yeah. household was, you know, quite educated. And you, funny enough, read a lot about breeding in your household, obviously not in reference to cannabis, but you were familiar with it before you started and then working with breeding in cannabis. Yeah, yeah. My dad, uh, very educated, master's degree, uh, couple bachelor's degrees and other things. Um, very intelligent guy. Um, 
always having us read books instead of watching TV. You know, when we were younger, when you're learning to do multiplication and division and stuff, you know, uh, during summertime, before that school year would come, our dad would hold us in summer so we couldn't ride bikes or go out and have fun. He would have us do flashcards. And we had to show him that we knew our multiplication, our division, like by thought, like not writing it down, not a calculator. We had to like, you know, so there's like all these things like, uh, you know, when I was younger, it was kind of like, damn, man, this guy is like, this guy's, this guy, this sucks, you know? So it's, it's also an age gap thing. So I'm, I'm going to be 36 this year. My dad turns 80 next month. So my dad had me and my young sister, you know, like, older. So I think he'd already experienced a lot of life and knew a lot about stuff and was like, you know, I'm not raising no dummy. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. And, you know, from, I guess, being exposed to that and do you feel like that has contributed to part of your success? Like you talked about earlier, having not only the determination, but the discipline to get things done. And obviously we see this in your training uh, physically now because it's something that you share on Instagram, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, discipline is the bridge between goals and like reality, like your, like your success, like nothing happens without hard work and life is not easy. Like this world is, a, I mean, this world is a cold, cruel place. Like you're gonna fuck up bad. You're gonna embarrass yourself in front of a lot of people and you're gonna trip, fall and land on your face. And the thing you're falling on the ground is not a soft surface and it's gonna hurt. And you have to have the mental fortitude, discipline and courage to pick yourself up and keep going because it's gonna happen multiple, multiple, multiple times. Like, Life is just not this easy streak where unicorns shit rainbows on Sundays. That's not how it works. You know, I lost my mother when I was 23 to suicide. My mother was a mentally ill drug addict who ended up killing herself. You know, uh, learning through that, growing through that, you know, um, I wasn't always this person who posted workout videos or this person that, you know, was physically fit. You know, there was a time where I was a completely defeated, scared little boy that had been molested. That's whose mother killed himself or herself that, you know, was terrified of the world who lied to everybody all the time because I figured if my own family could hurt me like that, what could strangers do to me? I did substance abuse, drugs. I tried everything to numb pain. And the only thing that made me happy and stopped the pain was to face it head on. Was to just say, you know what? Like, I'm stronger than this and you will not break me. And I forced myself to start doing the things that I hated or didn't want to do or that were hard. And so through learning new skills and taking those skills and conquering the demons that I put in front of myself and finally getting past that, I taught myself a level of self-respect, determination, and discipline that like, it's, it's absolutely priceless. Yet there definitely seems to be 
a big ability to share your vulnerability. You know, obviously those are not things that a lot of people would share publicly. And I, you know, we spoke about this privately. And like I said, I was, I was aware uh, about some part of your history because you've been very open about it. And you mentioned to me that part of your motivation outside of healing yourself was to share this with others. And, you know, I don't know if motivate them is the right word, but show them that, you know, that adversity, we all face adversity to, to degrees, you know, and like you said, that there is uh, a certain strength in, in showing that, but also working through it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, being in pain and hurting is not some just esoteric thing reserved for the poor or the weak. Everybody, I'm going to repeat this, everybody, I don't give a fuck who you are. If you're listening to this or you know somebody that you think is Superman, they are not. Everybody hurts. Everybody fucking regrets. Everybody loses and everybody feels pain to the point where they are weakened inside and feel dehumanized and want to cry. Like literally. That's why it's important to be a nice, kind person to people at all times because you do not know what someone is going through. Yeah, it's true, man. Well, uh, how about we take a smoke break, Taylor? You cool with that? Yeah, I'm down. All right. Sounds good. Shout out to our main sponsor, Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game. You can visit them at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100. Everyone at Rosin Evolution is always working hard to make sure that you have what you need, when you need, when it comes to all your rosin making needs, whether it's rosin bags, pre-presses, rosin tools, basically anything rosin. But outside of making and providing you the best rosin bags in the game, they also spend a lot of their time doing R&D and they press a lot of rosin themselves and other products that they find useful that they end up hooking up a lot of the hash makers that I get a chance to speak to. And I really value that, not only that they're dedicated to their craft in providing you the best product that they can, but also that they value education and that they like to share it with the community. You see them on Instagram live a lot, doing live presses, and of course supporting the podcast and even our first live event, Coffee and Donuts with Adam in Southern Maine, which is coming up soon on July 30th and 31st. So if you can make it out to Maine, you should definitely come hang out with us. It's going to be a blast. We're super grateful for Rosin Evolution support and all of this experimental work and as well as believing in the platform from early on. And together, we hope to keep bringing you the best content, the most useful information, terrific live events like Coffee and Donuts with Adam to go, and of course, the best rosin bags and the best deal on wash bags in the game which you can scoop at rosinevolution.com. And if you want to save an additional 5%, use our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710. That's THI710. Altogether saves you 5% on your entire Rosin Evolution order. I appreciate you listening and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. So let's go back to the point that you brought up earlier about terpenes. You know, terpenes, like you said, have become a main, if not the determining factor to what people look for in cannabis and you feel like 
some of the potency has been kind of bred out of that. So let's combine that with your prior knowledge of breeding. And then you started breeding, obviously using genetics that your family and yourself had acquired over time. And you said something to me in our prior conversation that was interesting. And you said, there's a problem with fresh frozen right now on the market. And the problem is there's not enough of it. And part Mm -hmm. of that you feel comes from not having the correct genetics to do that. So expand on these points if you can for us. That was quite a few points. You want to mention the first one? (laughs) (laughs) We just got done with a smoke break. I'm sorry. (laughs) So the first one was how the terpenes uh, kind of have overweighed you you feel in the, the potency. Okay, yeah. So if you look at strains like Skittles, but and first of all, I just want to state all of this is solely my opinion. This is not based upon any scientific fact or anything. This is just, you know, Taylor's two cents. So strains like papaya, strains like Skittles, you know, very, 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 very terpy, very unique, very pleasurable to smoke. I love both of them. But they're just not really hit it there on the potency department. And I feel like that's why lately a lot of people the last like five years have taken Skittles and have bred it into so many more things. Like uh, there's a lot of brands out there that have been created off taking Skittles and crossing it to something, you know, example like the Zushi, you know, these things. And I think it's because people, where, you know, after you smoke so much of one thing and you get used to a terp, then it's, it's, it's okay. But, you know, when that thing also isn't that potent, it starts to go out of fashion. So I think people were like, you know, we need to take this Skittles terp and we need to cross it with a plant that's very potent and we need to find the pheno that's potent and tastes like Skittles. You know, um, runts, all, the, all, the, all these popular, popular things that are in mainstream cannabis right now. And then, like, they've also been doing it with papaya and uh, these new papaya crosses. You're getting some of them that have that straight papaya funk, but they are strong. So I think a lot of people now, I think we're, we're starting to slowly tip the tide over from terpenes back to potency. And I think it'd be nice to meet in the middle where you have something that's really strong, but also very terpy. So the second part of the question was, in a way, you said there's a problem with fresh frozen and that the issue you feel like in part is that there's not enough genetics out there to support the demand. So let's talk about that point. So it goes back to terpenes also. When you're breeding for terpenes and you're focusing on how a plant smells and tastes, you're not really focusing on trichrome production. You're not focusing on the types of trichromes. You're not focusing on like what type of glands are on those trichromes. All the sort of things that are determining factors in hash production, specifically, you know, solventless hash production. Um, I got a good friend, Addison, uh, Instagram, Terpova, buddy of uh, his Instagram, Kevin is life. They do... Uh, 800 pound mantra and the pyramid pipeline. Those are both also uh, Instagram at 800 pound mantra, Instagram at uh, pyramid pipeline. 
they're trying to single stream and uh, get basically large production of seeds of people who are known to breed for trichrome production and solvent-free hash. Um, they're trying to get the California market specifically geared up to have a whole bunch of strains because right now there's only a handful of strains that make solventless. And then people are going to say, oh, well, there's so many more flavors than that. Yeah, well, people are taking, you know, papaya. Then they're taking wedding cake. They're mixing those and calling it papaya cake. When there's actually a strain bred by Oni Seed Company that is that, that washes. But what people will do, they'll, they'll take three different hashes and they'll mix six to nine different skews because they can mix and match flavors. And now that new flavor they mix, the hash becomes like a new skew doesn't make it like an actual plant that grew it. So I've teamed up with those guys and the Pyramid Pipeline to offer genetics. They're going to, you know, pop them on large scale. They're going to grow them out, pheno hunt. And, you know, they are with a bunch of other seed companies as well for that specific purpose, because there is just a legitimate lack of not only variety of fresh frozen, but the amount of fresh frozen for the solid free hash market in California. And where do you see Little Lake Valley Seed Co. play a role in that? Talk to us about some of these gyms that you have in your stable. Well, the thing is, is that I've offered all these seeds for free. I just gave them uh, quite a we would say a monetary value of seeds, but I don't see it that way. I see it as more of uh, teaming up with some friends that have an idea that I believe in. And if something prosperous happens to come out of that and my company gets recognition for it, then so be it. But yes, I did handpick a lot of the things that I specifically have bred for washing. One of the things is, is that I have a lot of friends that are into the solventless thing and I'm able to trade them for cuttings. And some of these cuttings will wash five, 6%. So sometimes I will have a male that's very special that I'll hit it with, or I'll do a reversal and hit stuff. And, you know, over the last couple of years, a lot of the stuff in my gardens have numbers on washing behind them. And I keep breeding and reinforcing those washing genetics into one another. So let's talk about the hash. You know, you grew up around weed, growing weed, connecting with it. At what point did hash start to play a role? Was it more out of like you just enjoy smoking a lot and you wanted to smoke hash or did you see a value in it? It was a way to be different. My whole life, I've just never really wanted to do what everyone else does. Everyone here in Mendocino County, popular thing was, you know, get a property, you know, it's called being on the hill, you know, oh, oh, I got to, you know, got to go up to the hill, being on the hill, you know, everyone's a hill kid. Oh, the hill, the hill, the hill, everything's the fucking hill. Uh, I just wasn't down for that. No disrespect, no dishonor. You know, I've been around and done it a couple of times, but I started to see like when legalization happened, not legalization, but like 215 happened. And uh, we got this dispensary in, uh, down in Ukiah, California, just down from uh, Willits, where I'm from. And I remember getting my medical card when I was 18. And uh, I remember going in there and it just 
it's a store with like wheat for sale, edibles, all kinds. I was blown away. I remember going home and telling my parents, and they were like, what do you mean they got weed stores? <laughs> oh, no. Like, I'm like, for real. You know, like, all my parents have like their triple beam, like the old school triple beam they used to have, like, you know, thinking it's still hidden from me or something, you know? Uh, su- su- super, super. I-, I-, I just saw a way. It just clicked in my head. I was like, okay, if, if these people can have these products and do this, I'm going to be able to do it as well. So at first in my head, I definitely thought, okay, I, okay, that was stupid. I do need to get a hill. I do need to grow some cannabis, bring it to these places and you know, sell it and stuff. Then I went to a dispensary in San Francisco and this place had hash. It had old school keef, not really made, very well made bubble hash. And uh, it was the old, old school vapor room. Uh, run by Martin over there on the uh, Hayden Ashbury. What was, year was this? Just that reference? Uh, 2000, 2004. And I, I was, I was blown. I was blown away. I was just like, whoa. I was like, what the heck? So then I got really, 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 really interested in making hash. And there was people around here that were doing like the old school, like t-shirt silk screens and making like rudimentary, what they would call dry sift nowadays, you know, but like not even full melt at all. We're talking just rudimentary stuff. And I moved to Cloverdale my sophomore year in high school. Uh, That was 2002. I moved there when I was 16. And uh, I ended up meeting an older gentleman that is a father of a former business partner of mine. And uh, this gentleman had been around Morocco, done the hippie trail, you know, had brought back isolator bags from Mila in like the late 90s and stuff. And I, I met this guy. He kind of like took me under his wing and I started learning all this stuff. So between 2002 and 2004, when I graduated high school, I learned a lot of like techniques, but it was really just for like personal smoking. When I saw the hatch in 2004 in the club down there, something in my head was like, okay, you don't need to be on a hill and you don't need a property. What you need to do, because at that time, growers were like giving you trim for free. Like it was like a nuisance for these people. Like you could roll up and be like, oh, hey, can I like take your trim in the, in a trailer? And they'd be like, I'll help you load it. Right. You know, and some of these people were going the right kind of strains where like even the trim would you know yield bubble hash, like headbands, sour diesels, you know, all these things. And it was just like, so in my head, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I definitely can do this. And I started making it in my parents' garage. Fortunately, I have very, very, very cool parents that were from the Mendocino doing the cannabis. Right, and right. I think my parents knew from a young age that I would be an entrepreneur and probably do something with cannabis. You know, whereas my little sister teaches second grade and as an anthropologist, she's more of like uh, dad, you say, the, the school smarts. <laughs> and I saw this future in this hash thing. and. Uh, the gentleman that I mentioned that was my former business partner, 
he was in college in Santa Cruz. And so I just kept making, making hash, practicing making hash. And I would drive it down to Santa Cruz and I would be selling it to all the college students and all these places down there. I finally met one of the people that worked at the dispensaries at a rave party down there. We're at one of the Boy Scout camps way out Highway 9, out Boulder Creek. And he saw my hash and he was like, dude, I work at this place. I'm one of the buyers, you know, and coincidental, his name's Ollie. He was the buyer at Vapor Room, the same place where I had the fucking was like, dude, the epiphany of like, dude, this, this is real shit. So I walk in the vapor room and it's like surreal. I'm like, man, I was just here like fucking not that long ago thinking about all these ideas. And I'm like, man, I'm actually living these ideas now. So this was the first time where I realized that, you know, you can think about something, but if you don't actually work and progress and work towards it, it's not, you know, it's just a pipe dream. It's nothing. So they bought hash from me. So I would do, I would do rounds. I would make all the hash at my parents' house go down. I would stop at dispensaries in San Francisco. So eventually I formed relationships with other dispensaries. Uh, there was that vapor room, NorCal dispensary. There's a couple others, but most of these places aren't even around anymore. They haven't been around for a long time. And that's where I got the idea because there, I had this nick, uh, nickname and uh, this friend of mine, Dan, we started this Bezel crew thing. And so he was Dan Beasel. I was Taylor Beasel. And so I had this idea and I was like, maybe I should like brand this stuff. I was like, you know, because like at, at first I was doing what you would call now white labeling. You know, these dispensaries were buying this stuff from me in bulk and they were putting it in their jars, branded, labeled and, and selling it for 50% markup. Like just, they were selling it for just as much as I was selling it to them for. And they were doing it the work. And, and I so was like, back in 2004 to six, I guess it is, is what was the yeah. price per gram at the dispensary? I just depend on what you had, you know, full melt bubble might be like 10 to $15 a gram. You know, and there was none of this. There was no Instagram. There was none of this popularity. There was no, I mean, matter of fact, like that type of hash making was sort of hush, hush. Not for the fact of the techniques, but because like you get your ass in trouble for that shit. Like police don't care. <laughs> right. And one of the things, again, going back to your connection to the area that we both discussed about last time that really seemed to have played a role in you learning about hash and outside of, like you said, this kind of mentorship was just having a lot of access to a lot of material. Oh, dude, I fucked, dude, I fucked up so much shit, dude. Like, yeah, just being fortunate, being born in the Emerald Triangle and just having people that literally just have way, like, so, I mean, some of these people lose a lot of shit to mold because they just grow too much. Don't, oh, I just, I grew too more. I don't have enough places to dry it. You know, like all these excuses most growers have come up with. But uh, yeah, no, I, by teaching myself and coming off the techniques that I was taught, I fucked up a lot of shit teaching myself back in the day how to do things. And so I'm curious, talk to me a little bit about this transition from learning dry sift, but at the same time, you know, you, you had an idea about the water. I'm always fascinated with 
the idea of water coming into hash and, and where that played a role. And you told me something that really piqued my interest that I was not aware of is that Reinhardt dealt with actually from the area. And, you know, he's obviously accredited with like the first machine or almost a predecessor to these bags. So yeah, I'm curious, like that shift, did you go from using dry material, obviously for dry sift to using dry material, like you said, picking up from anybody who was willing to give it to you to wash to fresh frozen? How did that happen? Well, the, 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 to be clear, the dry sift thing was like just rudimentary. It was what these basically hillbillies around here were calling keef and stuff, you know? Um, it was just a, a, a way to salvage more product, you know? Um, and mainly most people just kept it to smoke. It wasn't even a product that was offered for, for sale or anything. Um, and then going back with the ice water, so the Reinhardt, I don't know if Reinhardt is born here, like, you know, from here kind of thing, but he was definitely in the area for a while. And one of my older cousins got one of his like prototype machines, the big stand, they, the big metal stand up thing and has the conical like plastic bottom with the hose that runs into a glass jar. And, uh, yeah, uh, th- there's a lot of debate. The cannabis industry is full of who did what first and when and why we got bubble man. We got Mila, we got Reinhardt. I don't get into any of that shit. I I stay clear of the drama. I respect each and every one of them for their accomplishments and accolades and their inputs and what they've done. They all should be very proud of themselves. But the who did what first, when and why, I don't know. But I can say that me personally, I was stirring one of those machines with a little hand mixer that you would mix cake batter with, like grandma's hand mixer thing in one of those. Because it had the two holes in the lid that you plug the cake mixer thing in, and I, 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 that was the very first thing I ever had access to. And we're not, and there was no bags. There was no bag sets. The stuff would just run into a glass jar, and no one knew how to dry this stuff. No one knew how to do anything like that yet. Like you get this like taffy brown, soggy, wet, and then all of a sudden, after the moisture would actually go away and it would oxidize, it would crumble into this stuff, and then finally. It was like something that would be half decent to smoke. <laughs> right. No, that, but that's fascinating that that was that machine uh, was kind of the first vessel that you were using to doing your washing. You know, that it's kind of a trip. Yeah. And then not soon after that, had a, had a set of bubble bags. There was an old school head shop up here in Willits called the head, because it was called the headroom. And they were some of the first people that, uh, had like bubble bags and that type for sale of stuff in the store. Cause like, you know, nowadays head shops like the mighty Quinn and Santa Rosa and stuff like that. That's a, like a, the bigger metropolis area down from us in Sonoma County, the Santa Rosa area. And, uh, you know, you go in there back before all this stuff and you, you'd be asking Mandy Quinn, Oh, you guys got bubble bags. And they'd be like, excuse me. Like, <laughs> it's like you said bong in there or something, you know, and now you can go in there and they're like, Oh, what micron do you need? We got uh, singles of bags. (laughs) We got washing bags. We got washing machines. We got puck presses. I'm like, damn, you know, like, like not, not too long ago, you know, you weren't getting bubble bags at no head shop. 
that was like, you know, legitimate in a city. <laughs> yeah, that's funny, man. I, I always say like it, it seems like it's happened so fast, you know, it just. Mm-hmm. A- and shout out, shout out to Bob of the Peace Pipe in Santa Rosa at the Peace Pipe. He was the first OG head shop in Santa Rosa to carry all this stuff. And them dudes at Mighty Clean were scared forever. They saw OG Bob jump on, and then they didn't look back either. But <laughs> credit credit to him for being the first dude in Sonoma County carrying all the supplies the hashers need. Yeah, man. And I'm curious, you know, going from a non-bag system to a bag system, you mentioned that, like, your mentor had shown you or at least had a set of these Mila bags, which were, like, two bag systems, I believe, to begin with. Uh, what did you start seeing when you started adding bags? Well, just just qu- uh, quality. I mean, even when I'd used the first set of bags, because I'd used that Reinhardt machine here. And then when I moved to Cloverdale, like I said, it was about one, two years later, I moved to Cloverdale and I met that man. And he had these bags. Let's see, but he was, he was always using them to make dry sift. And he would wrap one of the fine things inside out on a bowl and he would tie like a uh, bungee cord around it to make it stretched on a bowl. And then he put the, the cannabis on there, like the, like the buds though, like really well grown buds that he did. And he put cellophane over it and beat it with sticks like they do in Morocco. And that was the first time I'd ever seen Keith that melted like full melt Keith or, or dry sift, you know? And it blew my mind. And then he's like, oh, like, you think that's some shit? Like, wait till we start using the ice water. And I'm like, ice water? (laughs) I'm like, what the fuck? And he's all, well, that's why this lady named them isolator bags, you know? And I'm like, oh, okay. And we made some of that. And we used really nice stuff. So then this gentleman realized, you know, I'm from Mendocino County. So I started bringing down all this stuff from my uncle, my cousins and all this stuff. And we started making hash. And he's like, yo, bro, like, this is some real deal stuff. And then fast forward to 2004, I saw the hash in the club. So I'm like, okay, this, this old hash maker that is like an OG of the OGs is telling me, that I have skills good enough now to make good stuff and that I have access to just plethora amounts of stuff that makes stuff. I was like, why am I wholesaling white labeling to these guys? Why don't I just make a label? And that's why I came up with the, you know, let's do Bezel. That was my little, little nickname in high school. Well, funny enough, you were saying a lot of people in your area were in essence, kind of laughing at the idea of you grabbing up jars and taking them down into the city. Not only laugh, well, they were laughing because they thought I was shit nuts because of the, the risk I was taking. Like, you got to remember, these people up here are growing on a ranch, right? And then there's buyers coming into town. So, like, either they just drive their product off the hill into town and get cashed out, or someone gets driven to their house and they get cashed out. So, it's, it's minimal risk. And these people are just living this farm life. So it's a a different level of perspective of what's going on. So these people are living for the moment of tomorrow for a dollar. I saw was like, yo, like if they're allowing stores to sell weed and hash to people like fucking Rexall and shit, like something's coming. I'm like, this is, they wouldn't just allow this because there's money in it. I'm all the state. 
and everyone knows that all the like they're gonna catch on and they're gonna be like, yo, this is totally cool. And like sure enough, man, the the you know, it it got 215 was in 96 when it got enacted, and I was 11. So 2004, that's not long after. And that that 2015 ship rode for a long time here in California. And I just was like, yeah, okay, yeah, I'm not about like that hill thing. And I was driving prepackaged grams from Cloverdale all the way to San Francisco, all the way to Santa Cruz. I mean, like hundreds and hundreds of just labeled packaged grams. And, you know, I, I was doing the labeled packaged gram thing. So before Instagram, so before that going and delivering it, you know, to these college kids and all this stuff. And everyone was like, you're crazy. You're crazy. You're crazy. You're crazy. You know? And then fast forward. And then, you know, I win my first Emerald Cup in 2010. And that is still in an era when, you know, I'm not sure if Instagram was even around 2010. I think 2012 is kind of when it did its thing. Yeah. And so back then there was no, like, I mean, we're talking like 2010 at the Area 101 above Laytonville at the base of the Spyrock Mountains, like a, like a, an OG, the OG, OG Growers Cup, you know, one of the last ones they did. So I won that. And then 2011, uh, there was like a sheriff scare so that they didn't have the concert competition. 2012, I won first again. And then 2013, I won third when they brought it to Santa Rosa behind Third Gen Family Farm. Shout out to Brandon at Third Gen Family. Uh, he whooped my ass that year. But in 2012, I did whoop that ass. I'm like, I'm the only person to whoop Brandon's ass in a competition. I got first 2012. So big, big, big dog knows, big dog knows what's up. He knows, he knows the drill. Brandon's a homie. He, he knows it's all good. Yeah, no, that's cool. I get that vibe for sure. Let's talk about the sour diesel because that's what took the cup in two, 2010, 2012, 2012 and, and 2013. That's that's what I won my cups with, all of them. Um, you said they came into the family, you believe, around 2010? I think, right? No, I think it was like 2008. 2008. My, my cousin just got some cuts, flowered them. And it was the most insane sour, like, you know, most sour diesel is larfy and, and not well put together, whether it's dep or indoor or anything, you know, this shit was golf balls. Like I still, to this day, I've never seen a cut of sour diesel like this. And we've been growing it forever and it was always selling and sour diesel always uh, called for the highest price. For, for pounds. So there's no reason to kind of like experiment and fuck around with it. Right. But I had always made the trim into hash and it always came out so good that like I kept it to smoke. So it clicked in my head. I was just like, Oh, okay. Like, 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 fuck it. You know, like, can I buy some of that? So my cousin was like, well, this was the, for, for the 2010 cup. I was like, can I buy some of this to, to wash? He goes, well, the problem is I'm not going to be done harvesting by the time, you know, you need your entries and stuff. You know, he goes, so we'll have to use something else. And I was like, no, no, no. And he's like, well, it's only at like week six. 
He's like, what the fuck do you want to do? And I'm like, I'll just chop it down fresh. He's all, what the fuck are you talking about? Chop down fresh fucking wheat. He's all, are you retarded? He's all, it's not done yet. Didn't you hear what I said? He's all, it's six weeks, Taylor. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I got, I was like, I don't give a fuck, dude. Like, I, I can't have another strain enter the competition. I was like, I want this one. So I chopped it and he's like, well, then what are you going to do with it? And I was just like, put it in, put it in the freezer. I was like, that's the only way you put wet weed. I was like, it'll mold in the refrigerator. Just put it in the freezer. So then I remember uh, doing like a little bit of it, right? Because I I saw it super fucked up. Like all week, I was like, dude, I'm so dumb. I should have just listened to my cousin. So I go back and I wash that shit in a little test wash. That shit came out where it was like fucking like plasma, like fucking sour diesel plasma. Because I wasn't working in a cold room yet. I, you know, that shit literally glued itself to my fucking bag. I was like, uh, I was astonished. I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, what in the fuck? And I was trying to scrape that shit off. So eventually I just let it sit out and it got crumbly and oxidized so I could get it off my bag finally. So then I started realizing, I was like, dude, I need to uh, do this cold. So thankfully the Emerald Cup is in December, right? Right. I'm, I'm going and I tell them and I'm like, okay, dude, listen, that sour diesel, right? I was like, makes the shit, okay? The, the Emerald Cup is an outdoor cup, right? So to honor Tim's rules, we go, and I had already taken, since I had done that test wash of the indoor, I go and take the outdoor and it had been dry because I knew that I couldn't fuck with the fresh. I didn't know how to fuck with it yet. So I took the outdoor that was dry and washed it. And thankfully I could get it through a flower sieve. It's like a, like, I don't know, before microplaning and all this stuff, I could get, I could force it through a flower sieve, which is another one of the techniques that old man taught me. And, uh, it happened to win. Yeah, that's crazy, man. And yeah, it's funny because I was talking to, I was telling you that uh, Simply Adam and I have become friends and I was telling him I was going to talk to you. And he's like, yeah, you know, Taylor came up uh, one time to check out like the microplaning or whatever. And he had, he's like, dude, he had this sour diesel that was crazy. He's like, just the smell off that sour D was just like intense and kind of wild. Yeah, that's why I kept entering it. Because it won first, then it won first, and then it won third. You know, I just figured, why why try to fuck with anything else if people keep being like, yo, that's the shit, you know? I remember okay. that trip up to Simply Adams. Yeah, yeah, I remember that was a very, very long time ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And he, uh, yeah, he was definitely impressed. It was cool to see somebody that actually knows what they're talking about and knowledgeable with hash and actually has passion for it, like Simply Adam. And it was cool to see him. Uh, I think uh, the words as he put it, it was uh, uh, sour, uh, sour diesel on steroids or something like that. I can see him saying that. No, that's funny, man. And like, it's interesting that was it outside of being really, really loud? And I guess that's part of my question as well. Is like, why was it that you wanted that plant to wash? Was it just the smell coming off it? Yeah, it was the smell and it was just like, 
like I said, I'd been washing the trim. And then I just knew that I wanted that, that plant, you know? And then it was that, it was that indoor run. You know, I was telling, I was telling my cousin, I was just like, I want to wash buds. You know, I want to wash buds. The outdoor wasn't finished yet. So, and then they was so like basically washing those frozen buds and like basically fucking up a batch of hash was like my like experimental precursor. It was like my, like, like I always remembered that batch. I was like, dude, that was the craziest hash I've ever seen in my life. Cause I, I just kept washing dry stuff, dry stuff, watching dry material, washing dry material. And then I just like, I was like, holy shit. Okay. And then when the information started coming out about like, you know, keeping your areas cold, doing that type of stuff, like microplaning, you know, that's when like my fresh frozen game took off hella hard. Cause then I could like actually process it. Cause like I said before, it was just like this, like plasticine, like glue gel on the bag. But right. yeah, like doing, doing my cousin's indoor like that was like my, like going like, Oh, holy shit. Like this is the shit. So then once I like found that out and I did the outdoor run, you know, I, like I said, I did it dry because I got nervous. I was like, dude, I don't want to do it like this. Cause I can't enter some crumbly powder, you know? Yeah. But even then it won. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it was still through the flower sift, so it still kind of like did the gel coagulation thing, but not like as like like the full melt you see today, you know, like the perfectly just grease pucks and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so, you know, I'm curious. Let's go back to competing because this kind of ties into it. You said the first few years there wasn't a lot of people competing in the water hash competitions. Obviously, rosin was not even Dude, a thing back then. The first year it was, I swear to God, the first year it was just like me and like a bunch of just like old school hill people that just like thought they knew about hash. Because yeah. in, in 2010, I won first and second place. I Both my entries won and it was first and second. So like what I was that I, other entry that you had? Uh, Pure Cushion Blueberry. It's called Blur. Okay, cool. So do you feel like a lot of it was the fact that people didn't know how to dry resin or the fact that people didn't understand that there was certain resin that worked better? It was all of it. Like, I just knew I was, I just knew in my area where I was at the time, I just had a lot more knowledge about resin and like hash than like most people that were just trying to like grow for monetary reasons and money. I mean, everyone kept saying, enter, like, enter the Emerald Cup up there. Like, enter that shit. They have a hash competition. Like, they're like, bro, like, guarantee you'll win. Like I said, I've always been reserved and humble. I was just like, I don't know, man. I don't know. And sure enough, I got first and second place. And I was like, holy shit. Maybe, maybe y'all are right. Maybe I do know a lot of shit, you know? Okay. It's interesting to see how that all kind of developed. So since you accidentally froze that sour diesel, did you start using that practice or did you kind of wait until, like you said, that information became Well, yeah, once, once, 
more more people started like messing around with stuff. You know, and I'm I'm not anywhere trying to say like I'm the godfather of fresh frozen. All no, right, no, no, for sure. No. Out. No, I'm just saying I just want to state that for everyone listening. Like I'm just, I I just at you know early on I did that fresh right and that was out of necessity. Like I froze it because I didn't want it to mold because like my cousin was like, I don't give a fuck if you fuck this up, you still owe me that money. Like I don't give a shit. So I'm like, yeah, I gotta freeze this. And then I remember I just ice and water. You know, and this was like thermo cups in December, so this was like like September. It's like right before harvest of outdoor, and I just wanted to find because there's so many outdoor strains, but I knew that sour diesel would work. So once I washed that, I was just like, oh, okay. But I was like, I can't wash the cup in too wet because I can't make it like that because I didn't know what I knew. I knew I didn't know what I was doing yet. But then after just making stuff dry and dry and then seeing more like the like bubble man used to have like this, this forum online, like ha- like this hash forum. I forget what it was called. And then there was IC mag forum, you know, and people started getting on there and talking more about hash and washing and stuff. I started realizing I was like, Oh shit. Like, okay. If you're in a cold room, the resin's less volatile. Oh, okay. Like, and like, oh, the microplaning, like, you know, because I, I knew that sticky shit wasn't going through no flower sieve. So freezing the bugs, grading it, and then like having a dehumidifier, I was like, damn, okay, okay. Yeah, kind of leveled up your game. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, it was just awesome to be able to take that stuff and actually process it into a product that was, you know, like how it should be. And do you remember, out of curiosity, I guess what the price points at that time? I guess a gram of hash was fetching around around like two thousand, like twelve. So you said like, in two thousand four to six, it was like ten to fifteen dollars for full mill. Yeah, like wholesale white label stuff, right? But they then, were selling for you know twenty five, thirty around there, and then about. 10 years later? I would say probably like 20, 20, 25 bucks a gram. You could probably, you could probably get right around there. You you didn't start seeing like crazy prices until like 14 or 15, like 14 or 15. That's when you started seeing like wholesale be like 40, 50 a gram. And like retail be like 80, 100. And so do you feel that was a contributing factor to being able to justify washing whole buds versus trim at that point? Oh, yeah, yeah. As soon as the price point caught up. That's why a lot of people didn't care about hash, especially the growers or anyone involved with cannabis for a while because there was just no money in it. As soon as, you know, more money got involved with hash making, you started seeing a lot more innovation, a lot more, you know, every, I mean, look at all these crazy industrial washers, all these freeze drying techniques, all this, this has all come out of because people now can afford to not only make a living with it, you know, and, and have their companies, but people that want to do it with passion can also support themselves while having the passion. Yeah, it's curious to see how things have come along, man. And out of curiosity as well, do you remember any of the earlier brands that you were seeing outside of yours in these dispensaries? 
like cash wise? Yeah, yeah. There was, you know, uh, I mentioned Brandon through Gen Fam. Uh, there's Kobe with full flavor extracts. Um, and there's uh, Elliot with ET extracts. There's a cut. There's there's definitely a definitely a, co- a couple more. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. No, I was just wondering, man. You know, it, it's always interesting to see who was out there doing different things at different times. I think Beer Goggles or Nothing But Net used to be a guy that put out things pretty early on as well. But I haven't had a chance to speak to him, so I don't know. I think I, I do remember that Nothing But Net for sure. All right, cool, man. Well, I think this would be a good opportunity for us to take a second smoke break. All right. I want to take a moment to thank every person who makes up our community on Patreon for allowing us to keep producing episodes, including episode 31 with Taylor of T. Beasel Farms and Little Lake Valley Seed Co. As always, I'd like to give a big shout out to some of our top contributors, including the crew at Soikubano in Denver, Kevin of Lifted in Dina, our homie Jendo420, Nick the Intern in Michigan, Mario, Ryan, and Jonah in Illinois, the homies from Mission Hill Melts, Meltwalkie Jeff, MTS Farms, Gastown Fire in their Cedar Valley Retreat, the homie Chris in Grass Valley, the crew at Heritage Hash Mendocino, Hash and Hedies in SoCal, Pressing for Show on the Big Island, and David of Rosin Evolution. Thank each and every one of you. Now back to the episode. All right, cool. So let's jump back into this fresh frozen thing because you brought up something that I found intriguing and I think it's a valuable thing to talk about. And this is fresh frozen weight. And you said that you don't feel like there's necessarily inequality in what it translates to based on the density of that particular cannabis genetic. Yeah, like so the standard right now is five to one. They say five fresh frozen pounds equals a dry pound. So usually <clears throat> whoever you're getting it from, they're going to base, you know, so let's just say they sell a dry pound for a thousand dollars. They're going to try to charge you $200 per fresh frozen on that. Some places try to charge way less if you're buying a lot more in bulk, but that doesn't really work. Um, a lot of different strains have different densities. A lot of different strains uh, just frankly aren't going to be the same weight at the five to one, you know, um, especially strains like sour diesel and stuff. I mean, those, those might be up to like eight to one, nine to one, maybe should be gone off of a uh, yield percentage. You know, there should be a, a standard for when you're buying fresh frozen and or you're buying cuttings and clones to put in to a situation to even grow it, it should be based upon like real numbers. So, you know, if you have a strain that's yielding 4%, it should cost less than a strain that's yielding 5%. And then the strain yielding 6% should cost more than the strain yielding 5%. You know, at the fresh frozen pounds and at the clones for the facilities. What about like discrepancies in cycle to cycle within those genetics? So for example, you're saying if you were to charge on a percentage of the fresh frozen hash weight that you get back from the material and it were to vary from run to run with the same genetics, 
do you think that that would become problematic under that scheme? Well, the thing is, is that when you're selling fresh frozen pounds, you just, you just test it. See, see, see what it yields. Yes. If you're growing a big enough facility, there might be areas that are yielding less, but out of a whole huge run, you pick sample runs all throughout the harvest. You don't just get it at one spot. You run those and you do an average. You know, and if the average is coming back four or five percent, four and a half percent, that's what base, that's what the price of those fresh frozen pounds should be based on. Like the cuttings, if you get a cut, okay, and somebody grows it and it gets a percentage, it may, based upon your skill level of growing and your knowledge level, you may get less, you may get more. You know, I've gotten cuts from people that say, oh, this is a four percenter and I've gotten five and a half percent out of it. You know, so yeah, that is a factor too. But when you're first buying the cut, you know, if it's been shown and proven that it can do, let's say 5%, then yeah, those, you know, cuts should hold a higher market value than, you know, just average cuts that are just for flowers or cuts that people cross their fingers and hope they make solventless. You know, real deal proven genetics should hold value because there is a lack of it in today's market. Yeah, so on that note, let's talk about some of the genetics that you're providing through Little Lake Valley Seed Co., including the Fofana, which you've told me uh, there's kind of some variations of. Yeah, yeah. So my Fofana is the uh, original male I started everything off of. I was doing a lot of like breeding and trying to do like new genetics and stuff and the newer exotics. So I had a banana OG. And I crossed it to my heirloom OG. My heirloom OG is SFV to Hollywood PK to Deadhead OG. And I'd had that around for a while. Yields great for hash. Very, very, very good plant. And then I'd always like Sherbert. Sunset Sherbert was always a cool plant to me. And you could never really find it in solventless form. Like ever. And I wanted to add some like color. So I crossed those together. That's what made Fofana. So it's banana OG, heirloom OG to sunset sherbet. I grew those females out and I was so astonished and happy with the results. I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to save males from next round. I saved males and the males came out really cool for males, like super chunky, super frosty, uh, just nice male plants. And that's when I started crossing everything. And, uh, have had quite a few positive feedback and results from quite a few people. It's really, really uh, nice to see. And then from that Falfana, what else have you crossed to it? A bunch of things. I did like the more exotic things that, you know, the more big growers around here are going to look for that are tried and true, like the ice cream cakes and the wedding cakes, you know, sour diesel, stuff like that. Um, one of the more impressive ones I did to it, I crossed it to GMO and that's what made the shallot shishimi. And I actually made a whole nother line of seeds off of that. Cause that, that plant was very, very, very impressive. 
Yeah, and I'm curious because of the GMO influence, what happened with the flowering time there? It dropped it down. It's still like nine, nine and a half weeks, but it's not no 10, 11 week. Uh, you still get that must, musty funk in like the, the week nine. I mean, you could pull it at week eight if you wanted because you're hashing. You're not really bagging it for flour. But to get that full, full like Parmesan cheese funk thing going on, uh, yeah, you want to leave it to like week nine. And what typically is the sign for you to pull your plants, whether it's that variety or another? When they're done. There's just when plants are done. Like I don't pull early. I don't believe in pulling early. I don't, I don't care. Uh, if a, if a trichrome is a little darker, uh, like, like naturally, because that's what time that that plant is done. I try to explain to people, you know, cause everyone wants this super blonde white hash across the board where everything looks the same. And that's not, nature that's not how plants work that's not how the universe works there is no perfect in nature and different plants mature at different times different plants have different trichromes different colors of trichromes so you know it's foolish to think that you should have a you know this premature pulled plant so you can have like this whitish resin like i mean come 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 on now i think uh one of your guests you had on the real deal resin um, he, he was, uh, talking about that a little bit, how they don't pull stuff early and sometimes stuff will be a little darker and they explain to people like, Hey man, you know, like we're going for the full potency of the plant and the, you know, we're not just going for a look in the turp profile, you know, and that's, that's, you know, that's, you know, pun on words, real deal shit. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to them. And I know they mentioned you and you guys have a cool connection and funny enough, last time you took, you, we talked. You were like, yeah, they're the kind of dudes that like, had it been in the old school time, I would have vouched for to get a piece of property up here because oh, yeah. they're, they're cool yeah, dudes and stuff. Old school days, they're actually one of the ones that like, if I was back there in that time, I'd vouch for them to come up. They're actually really, really cool. I mean, they actually like grow and stuff. They've, they've grown crops to wash and hash. They've felt the, the struggle and the strife. They've made the mistakes. They've, you know, they don't treat growers like pieces of shit like most of these you know new age hash makers and some other hash makers man they're fucking rude they're sociopathic assholes they treat growers like they're nothing and it's like bro if you don't grow your own stuff you're nothing without the grower and then like if you've never grown a crop ever like what do you know about like struggle and loss and fucking not coming out on top you know so shout out to real deal resin you know they are you know, they, they, for, for being as young as they are, they, they keep their head high and, you know, they got some clout in the game from some OGs. Yeah, no, that's cool to hear, man. And they mentioned one of the things that they really appreciated about you was sharing genetics with them, you know, and your willingness to do. Well, I'm just one. Well, just sharing genetics. I mean, it, it's just, some 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 people just see it as like you know sharing some genetics and sharing share, sharing a plant you know uh, there there's we the people in this industry and the people that know about this plant man we got to stick together and keep this shit up. There's a lot of bad shit going on in this world, you know. You got 
you know, Aiden Munoz, or I, I apologize if I'm not saying his name right, but we got a, you know, a six-year-old kid down here in California getting shot, killed on the freeway, dying in his mom's arms on the way to school. You know, there's, there's bigger fucking fish to fry here in this world than, you know, petty bickering over, I ain't going to share this and we ain't going to share that. You know, like we got a thing here where we could stick together and generate enough stuff where we could teach children not to hate each other. You know, we could we invest money into programs, you know, give back to communities, you know, you know, fuck cars, fuck all that shit. Like I was saying earlier, you know, how about helping kids, helping people, you know, that's where it's deep for me. You know, like I share things with people because it's not about like hoarding stuff for me. It's about giving others access into things and hopefully it'll give them access into another form of life where they can generate enough where it's excess and then they can share knowledge and stuff with others. So people don't have to be in pain. Yeah, I definitely agree. There's a lot of uh, darkness in the world and, you know, to be that light is, is good, but it also takes a certain kind of strength to it. You know? Yeah. The, there's just, you know, like, like bottom line, a lot of us just need to like wake the fuck up and start loving one another again. You know, greed, hate, anger, jealousy. These are all things that exist in darkness. They can't exist in a realm of love and light, you know? So like if all you project is positivity and light, these things can't exist around you. And positivity is contagious. It's like a disease. Like all you have to do is spread it. That's it. Yeah. So jumping around a little, let's talk about when you went from being an Emerald Cup winner to an Emerald Cup judge or even kind of like the head of the solventless part. That was two, that was, uh, so I won, I won third place 2013 and then 2014 is the first uh, year I was a judge. And yeah, I was the head judge, was assembled to put the teams together, um, all that kind of stuff. Kind of went through and reworked their whole um, judging system and how, you know, that kind of stuff should be judged in the point system and what was more important you know, what real hash makers, you know, what, you know, there was a lot of loose terms being thrown around five star, six star, full melt, grease, you know, so, and I also knew a lot of the top hash makers, you know, like Cuban Grower, like Nicotee, you know, I would bring and assemble these people on teams. So if people that, you know, let's just say some people get kind of sore, dude, like, after the competition, we're all at the booths, right? And you get people coming up being like, yo, dude, I got 12th place. Like, I don't feel like I deserve 12th place. Like, can you explain to me? And I'm like, okay, like, if you just take the time, you know, and then once they realize that there's four or five people speaking to them that basically they admire, you know, it's a little hard to argue. It's like, yeah, I didn't put together just some team that wanted to smoke your hash for free. I actually put together a team of professionals that could actually rate and judge your product to a point where like, it does make sense why you got 12. And most people would walk away and go, wow, thanks for explaining it to me. You're totally right. Like, I didn't realize like there's levels to this shit, you know? And the, ju the judging was really cool, man. The judging, uh, it was cool going from like competing to judging. It, it was cool to see, you know, like you could tell the people that actually were putting in hard work in their entries. And then you could tell the people that weren't because in the beginning, Tim, 
Tim Blake that owned the Emerald Cup, he was giving away free tickets for entries. So you had people literally getting like cat turds with lint and jars. <laughs> like just for free tickets, you know what I mean? Like there was literally like the years he was giving free tickets, some years you get, we'd have like 130 entries. And out of those 130 entries, there maybe was like 20 that were like judgeable. All the rest were like totally blatantly like things to get free tickets. But then after they did that and they were like, no, no, you don't get free tickets. You got to like give us your entry and then pay for your tickets. Like it went from like 130 entries to like, we got like 65 or 70. Like it was like, it was crazy. And then as the years went on, it just got better and better and better entries, you know? And what were some of those criteria that you guys were looking for back then? Well, a lot of this is pre-rosin, you know? So we're talking full melt bubble hash, six stars, you know, all the other terms that I was using, to, like, because uh, a lot of your guests are from different parts of the country. So there's different terms used in different parts. But, you know, we're talking about that first pool, 90 micron, fucking fresh, the you know, the cream. That's what we're talking about. It was all about melt, like, but like melt as in like how much residue that it left. Cause like there's stuff that would be super melty, but it would leave like a little charcoal, you know? So we want to see melty, but we want to see melty and like disappear. Some judges smoke different ways. That's why, um, like Nick T, Nick T rolls his stuff in a spliff, smokes it with tobacco. I've never smoked tobacco in my life. Like, I think he's crazy, but, you know, shout out to Nick T. He's the man. I love that homie. But, you know, we all smoke our different ways. So it's cool to see all that. But you want to see like melt factor. You will definitely want to see taste. Potency was one of the highest because, like I said earlier, I'm all about a potency. You know, and a lot of the other judges agreed that, you know, I mean, taste is whatever. But like, you know, if you got something tasty and stony, that's a huge plus. And uh, the other thing was how well kept is it? Like, is it all crazy oxidized and just discolored? You know, like, how was your drying technique? Did you get a lot of the water out of it? You know, so there was a a, a number of factors but we had it to the point to where, you know, you had to make the, make the best. And there was a couple of years I was judging that um, Brandon, the third gen fam, I mean, swept the cup. I mean, swept the cup, like first through 10th place, swept the cup. And there was a lot of people that were like upset trying to, you know, little, you know, talking out of the side of their neck, hush, hush, bullshit. Like, oh, Brandon paid you. And I'm like, fuck, Brandon paid me fucking shit. I was like, I wouldn't accept shit for Brandon. I was like, I'm a way more honorable person than that. Like, I take that judging shit serious. Like, when people were judging for me, I would tell them, like, bro, you, like, when I give you your kit, you can't have any, like, when your friends come over, you have to put your kit away and your judging notes. And, like, you like after the competition's done, you can share whatever notes you want. Y'all can smoke all the fucking extra hash you want. I don't give a shit. But like while the competition's going on, it has to be pure. It has to be kept. Like I don't need no fucking shit going on where people are like, oh no, this was set up. Like as too many cannabis competitions get too many bad names 
for being rigged. And I didn't want that shit. And then when Brandon won that shit, people were like, oh, wow, we know he kind of set you up. And I'm like, whatever. I'm like, y'all just suck at making hash. (laughs) Brandon literally like, like went out of his way to grow that many strains that he knew and he had pre-tested that made hash. Like, yeah, Brandon might be a little loud, but that motherfucker ain't stupid. And he's not afraid to work hard. Okay. And like the, the people just got all upset because they didn't realize that fucking Brandon just worked circles around him and outsmarted them on a competition and took all the accolades home. But that things without accolades, you you get what you deserve. <laughs> yeah, and I think it was about Brandon that you mentioned this that I found funny that he used to drop it off like right before the cutoff. So you'd still yeah. have some granular kind of effect to it. Yeah. That's another thing. That that's not breaking any rules. Okay. And people would be like, Oh, well, I dropped off my entry fucking a week ago or two weeks ago. And I'm like, well, who told, who told you you had to do that? Oh, your entry says from this date to this date. And I'm like, yeah. So if Brandon goes on the last day of what that entry says on the posters, technically he's going at an appropriate time that anyone else could go. It's not like he's doing anything special. He's not getting any red carpet to some fucking refrigerator that gets his shit, you know. And like that's smart. Like he understands. He's like, oh, this shit that's super gooey, like it can only be gooey for so long. So then it starts to cake up. So he would have his entries and they'd be perfectly presentable. You know, he's not stupid. He knew what he was doing. Yeah, at that point it becomes strategic. Of course. Well, that's what competitions are. Like you, come on, man. Like you want to be high level. You want to be like getting first. You want to stand on that stage. You want the shit that others paid blood, sweat and tears for then earn it. Cause that homie, that shit ain't free. Like if you want to be high level, be high level, like go do the seed popping, go do the pheno hunting, go do the pre-washing and figure it out. Like that's like, people think he's just some dumb redneck up in the hills of Mendo that lucks out. Fucking get real, bro. Like. And I'm curious, you know, since we talked about drying so much and obviously we start like from when you basically weren't almost drying at all, just letting it almost do its own drying after putting it through the machine. Are you, I'm assuming you're talking about the the Reinhardt thing. Yeah. When you were doing the Reinhardt thing. Dude, when we were doing the Reinhardt thing, you know, you pour the, the water, the hash out, you know, and it would come out of the water and we would wring it out in a cheesecloth. You know, and after we'd ring out in cheesecloth, some of it, you could like powder up with a credit card, not powder, but like getting like these break it up. chunks. Yeah, you could break it up. But like we were just leaving it on like parchment paper on a cookie sheet, like in a room, like no dehydrator, no, no dehumidifier. No, no, just leaving it in a fucking room and it would like air dry. Some of the chunks sometimes would stay like this kind of oily a little bit, but then most everything would, you know, cake up and turn into a powder. But some of those powders were really, really melty, like really melty. So it was just like, I, I didn't figure out till I met that old, until I met the old man that was a, a, the father of one of my friends. I didn't, uh, he, he took it and after he had squeezed it in like cheesecloth like that and stuff. So I was like, damn, okay, maybe I was on the right track. So he'd take that and put that in a refrigerator and let it chill out and stuff and then 
keep pieces of part, uh, not parchment, but paper towel underneath like the pressing screen that would come with the isolator bags. And the moisture would wick out into the paper towels. And he'd keep flipping the patty over in the refrigerator. And all of a sudden, that motherfucker would be sandy. And I was like, oh shit. And he'd drop it cold into the fucking flour sift. And he'd flour sift it over parchment. And then that's the first time I saw stuff that would actually like greased and patty up. Because it was like semi-dried, right? Yeah, he understood that it had to be dried. Yeah. So, yeah, that's kind of cool for you to see that and then start learning from there. But uh, you're using freeze dryers, though, now? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I still am a big fan of air dry. It's, uh, you know, it has its purpose in its place. I think it's like nostalgia because uh, freeze drying, it's just... I'm going to be honest with you, man. I hate microplaning. I got big old fucking hands and shit. And usually I'm making big batches. Like I seriously ain't got the time nor the patience anymore. I don't want the fingertip bleeds, the just everything that goes with microplaning, like on a small scale, if you want to do it for nostalgia, I, you know, that's cool. But the whole freeze drying is just, it is a godsend miracle for uh solvent free hash making. Yeah. And this, the other point I wanted to touch upon is, you know, you mentioned being the Emerald cup judge and having these panels of guys that were looking at melt. Were you still around judging when rosin hit the scene? I don't, I don't believe so. I might, I might have caught one year where uh, Rosin was there, but I don't, I don't believe so. And how do you feel Rosin has changed the game since you've seen it kind of evolved from quite a while ago? Well, to start that out, free, freeze dryers sort of changes the game. Like there wasn't too many people making solventless hash in any kind of quality and quantity. And then after freeze dryers came out, that sort of took out a lot of the, like it takes out a lot of the artists, they would call it, you know, extract artists, you know, it takes out all of the artistry and the years of learning of how to basically take a, you know, a lot of people can take a bunch of cannabis and ice and water in some bags and strain it. But to take that water, that hash and get it into like a perfectly dried form that you'd want to press into rosin or even smoke in a bubble form, that's a lot of knowledge and techniques. So there's like a huge explosion of like solvent-free hash making with the freeze-drying technique. That in turn brought a lot of more people into the scene of wanting to be hash makers, which in turn made a lot more ingenuity because a lot more people thinking of ideas, a lot more people. So it was actually like, you know, a lot of the old school hash makers, there's some of them that say, Oh, it kind of sucks. These new age hash makers, they didn't earn it the right way through years of work and struggle. You know, they just, they buy some bags in a freeze dryer and they think they're just this new age company. And it's like, well, they are like, it's not their fault that, we did all the hard work to pave the way for a lot of these people. Like you, you should feel blessed that you're a part of that group that helped, you know? And like, now you should like not be the crotchety old person. That's like, Oh, they didn't earn it. Like 
dude, who cares? They're out here crushing it and they're out here making new equipment and making new ideas and all of this stuff. So like, yeah, the, the freeze dryers chain stuff, then that changed the rosin and the rosin game has just basically, I think some people don't want to admit that, you know, uh, you can take full melt, but full melt still inherently has impurities. It has the trichrome head. It has the myosin head and all the cellulose coating that encapsulates everything. You know, that's why when you press, there's some of that stuff left in the bag, even if you press full melt. So it's like a purity thing. Then a lot of people just, you know, like that, that thing that they're smoking hash oil, you know, like taking a dab that's solventless and not butane, you know, that, that whole, you know, uh, dabbing phenomenon that our culture has experienced, you know, and now you're getting like, you know, kind of like Democrats and Republicans. You got solventless smokers and you got VHO smokers, you know, and it's like, both are good made correctly. Both can be bad made incorrectly. Both can be unhealthy if made incorrectly, you know? So it's, it's basically, you just got to find something that's good and that you like to smoke. Sorry, I lost my train of thought. Give me a second. <laughs> Yo, bro, this is the Hashishin Inn where two hours. <laughs> Let me see. Where was I, though? I think we were talking about how uh, you bringing back that Cuban episode, bro. What's up with that Cuban episode? Bring it back, yo. Yo, bro, what's up? I, uh, I hear that quite often, actually. Um, yeah, no, I don't know, man. I, I, I kind of lost my train of thought on that one, which has happened, happened in a while, so that, that's cool. But, uh, um, you know, one of the things that I wanted to touch upon before we kind of start wrapping this up is you, you mentioned... Uh, working with a former business partner and he references dad and in part you accredit like having this vision for seeing this turn into an industry and brands becoming valuable to these trips that you were doing back and forth between your place and visiting your homie who again became your business partner and is no longer. And I'm always curious like to get people's insight on these types of situations without getting, you know, into two specifics, but like, is there any kind of advice that you can give people when having working relationships, particularly in cannabis? Um, yeah, it's, you know, it goes, it goes with anything. The, the fundamental foundation of any successful person, team, uh, sports team, anything is communication. Like you have to be able to communicate. You have to be able to articulate what you're saying and you have to be able to come from a place of understanding and not a place of like demeaning and pointing your finger. Like nobody knows everything. You know, we all make mistakes. You know, everybody's human. And, you know, like, like I said, we're, this, this world's already crazy, batshit, fucking nuts already. Like, we don't need any more people, like, just being aggressive and being assholes to anybody. And then, like, if you're not a communicative person and you don't know how to express your feelings in a positive way that isn't so, like, aggressive or, like, comes off as demeaning the other person... Like you're not going to have a successful business relationship with somebody, especially if that person knows how to do those things. But like, hopefully 
if they can recognize it in you, they're gracious enough to like, you know, bring it up to you, talk with you, civilized about it. And then you guys can work through it. You know, there's just a lot of people in the cannabis industry that, you know, I don't want to be mean or rude, but they've never had a real job. They've never had to have like a boss, you know, somebody over them telling them like what to do, or they've never had to keep a schedule or they've never had to manage money. You know, these are all like things and lessons that like, if you're trying to run a business and you don't haven't learned either through school or life experience, you know, it's going to suck. And then most people don't know how to ask for help. Like instead of asking for help on these things, especially with men, you know, it's more common in men than women. Men always have this proud thing. Like, you know, the stereotypical, like, I'm not stopping to ask for directions. I know where I'm going. Like, that's why that stereotype exists because men in general are too proud to ask for help. It kind of ties into what you were saying earlier a little bit about this idea of like uh, being vulnerable, you know, and uh, kind of in one of our breaks, uh, you had read something that you had jotted down about in essence, I felt like empowering others through, what would you call it? Like just being open or willing to be vulnerable, I suppose. Well, I just think some people sometimes like they see the vehicle I drive or the house I live in or they see the how many ever followers I have on Instagram or, you know, and this new age digital world where everything has lived through this false, you know, reality that we call social media. Like, I think some people get it twisted and they see me, especially now that I'm going to the gym a lot and I'm, you know, acquiring medals of powerlifting. And I wasn't always this strong person mentally and physically. I didn't always have these things in my life. You know, I had to teach myself skills and how to acquire happiness and how to acquire the monetary things that I have, you know, and I'm so open about my abuses and I'm so open about the things that I've gone through and the things I've experienced because I think it's, I think it's necessary. I think it's like somebody's moral obligation when they go through those times and they come out on the other side positive and, you know, they didn't turn into a drug addict. They didn't, you know, do these like things, you know, it can, it, 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 I think it's your moral obligation to, to share with other people because it helps others. It's like that, that thing that I, that, I was, that I said to you, it's like we have such an innate desire to hide the blemishes of our life from the world, to cover up the bad that has happened to us, to deny all of the abuse that life has bestowed upon us. But when we hide away our survived tragedy so no one will see them, we betray our real story as a person. When we have battled our way through abuses, when we have reached points where we felt we could not take another minute, yet somehow did, when we made it through the darkest of times, when we tell that story to the world, we show everyone just how strong of a person we really are. And maybe by sharing the remains of those wounds with others, we save their life. Because when we wear our scars proudly across our body, 
will inspire those in the middle of their own nightmare to go on. Yeah, man, that's powerful. And I appreciate you being so honest and candid with us and, and really raw. So, um, yeah, just thanks for that, man. Yeah, I know we've been hanging out a while, man. So I appreciate you. I'll start winding this down. It's always a little awkward to ask these types of things, but you and I actually brought up this incident that happened a few years back. And more so, I wanted to talk about it as like a learning lesson for you, especially uh, combining that with social media. And this was you watching some material, posting it, and then people seeing that it had you know, some PM on it and yeah, yeah, yeah. it became a whole thing. So would you talk to us about it? Yeah, yeah, of course. So that was a friend of mine who lives just down the road from me and uh, he's a quadriplegic and, you know, he has workers that try to take care of his rooms and stuff. Um, well, anyways, he knows I make cash. He doesn't like going to the club and just paying the outrageous money and stuff, you know? and when I saw his stuff, he just like, I don't care that it has PM. I don't care. Just fucking make that shit. Give me my shit. I need to smoke. And I'm like, okay. So I went home and I took the video of it, you know, and I, I think I was in my bathtub and I got a text, um, from Jay, uh, professor sift. And he's like, yo, dude, you got to check IG. Like, shit's blowing up shit's going crazy and like i come like i said from a pre-generation where like social media is still like new to me so like i didn't understand like how one can be like attacked like bef before i even got on there to like say anything like there was people sit like Dude, like there was just crazy shit being said on there, you know, and it was like hundreds of comments. And to be honest with you, I didn't know how to deal with it. You know, I was going through some things in my personal life. I was just coming to terms and going through like all sorts of stuff with like my child molestation and stuff, going to counseling for it. So it was just a bad like spot in my life. And I just, instead of just going on there, you know, and like being honest and just saying like, Hey, this is done for my friend in this wheelchair. Like I'm not making this for people, you know, I like did this like weird spiteful post and, uh, I can't, I can't even remember what I said, I said on it, but um, there, I like, there was people, um, I had, I had a wife at the time. There was people like attacking her. I, I like, you know, I just handled the situation poorly. I did the wrong things. I, uh, communicated with the Instagram community and the people that follow me wrong about it. And it was a very, very valuable lesson in me on how to handle myself on social media. Also, it was a big lesson in like who was my friend and who wasn't. There was like people that like I'd been to their houses and like chilled with these people. And then they were like attacking me in a way that I like it was just 
you just didn't have to attack somebody like that, you know? So yeah, yeah, that, that for me, um, was just a, a, a big, a big le- learning lesson, you know, that how, when you're, like I said, I'm just, I always perceive myself as this just scared, shy, little abused boy from Willits. I don't, I, I didn't really, I didn't put it together till later that, you know, you are T. Beasel, you have this account, there's people on here that have this level for you, they expect you to act this certain way. And then when they took something the wrong way, instead of me just being an adult about it and right away stating what happened, you know, I was childish for it. And so, you know, I paid the price for it. Yeah, no, I mean, that's pretty reasonable, man, especially if you weren't in a great spot in your own personal life, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, it's no excuse. I would. Ne- it's not an excuse. I'm not trying to make an excuse. I want people to know that I'm fully 100% as a man owning up for everything. But I just want people to know, like, uh, I'm not purposely, maliciously trying to grow a shit product and then blatantly film it and put it in people's face. Like, right. Uh, I, I just not that. I just hope through the first bit of this interview people could get that I'm not an uh, evil malintent person I just didn't know how to handle that situation and I handled it poorly and I can admit that I did it the wrong way and you know I'll take 100% blame and say that I'm at fault for not doing the right thing oh well what do you see in the future of the brand either T. Beasel or Little Lake Valley Seaco well, b- both I've both I've teamed up with a with a friend of mine. Uh, I refer to him as Humboldt Jose. He does the Promethean brand. Um, I'll have to get you his at, at on Instagram. I think I think it's uh, it's like the Humboldt no not no Humboldt Humboldt official at Humboldt official. I'm pretty sure that's it. And then our boy Chico from Doja Pack. I'll get you his too. It's like uh, at Chico Crenshith. There's, it's one. It's I can't pronounce it, but I'll get you that one too. We've all three teamed up for doing breeding for washing for high end solventless genetics, and for flower as well. Doja the the Doja Pack gang. They picked up a plant from me that they're momming out right now. It's my uh, Skittles crossed a black lime reserve. I call it buttermilk. There's words that they're saying they might rename it or something, but they're still giving me credit for it. But uh, those guys are running with one of the strains right now. I'm excited to see what they do with it. Beyond And beyond that, you know, um, I try to do stuff for people. I do a lot, a lot of giveaways on my, on my seed page. I try to do a lot of like pop-up events locally for people. I try to do a lot of stash and dash. Um... Yeah, I've seen those hot sauce challenges. Yeah, yeah. I try to just be a connection with people. I think there's just, there's a lot of just like money and people in cannabis that like don't give a fuck about cannabis. Like they didn't until there was money in it. And so they kind of, they see me as one of those like old school people. That's why I haven't jumped so much in the legal game, you know what I mean? Like trying to team up with my team I mentioned and then you know, we're going to, you know, have some stuff going on, but, you know, mainly I try to just, just stick to the, just the straight people, man. 
But if I could get something set up to where I could have the brand on a legal that made sense and made money and all that stuff. Yeah, no, I'd be down. Yeah, yeah, that's cool, man. I, I definitely respect that, man. This is always an interesting question, but top three favorite hash makers slash hash brands. Top three makers and brands. Either or. Oh, okay, okay, okay. We got you. Let's see. Okay. Well, that's a that's a that's a pretty that's a pretty good one there, man. <laughs> I, like, I, I I like that. I like that one. Let's see. Oh man. Oh, there's so there's so many there's so many running in my head, dude. Hell of people make that fire, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's always one of the toughest questions. I, I leave it for last or kind of last. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, uh, that's a that's a funny one. Um well how about Nick 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 a tease one. He's he he makes that fire. Nick is one of my favorite, especially especially from like back in the day. And then uh Dab Olio. Yeah, the Dab Olio crew. Dispen- Dispensary Dan, he's with them. And then Roz and Ryan. Dispensary Dan, Roz and Ryan, the Dab Olio crew. Yeah, those guys make that fire. And uh uh d- down there, down there at uh Compassionate Heart Dispensary in Ukiah. They got little, uh, at Kim Jung Rosin in there pressing. I had some shit out of there that was super good, dude. Yeah, he's uh he's running with the third gen crew, right? Uh, I uh, I'm pretty sure. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely keep up with him. Uh, he was it was funny. I don't know if you keep up with the real cannabis, Chris. Um, uh-huh. he put out like some new design where oddly enough, somehow I made it on there, but, uh, Kim Jong Rosin is on there too. Oh, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So that was pretty cool. But, and then Dustin, Dustin, a real deal. So we'd have to say real, real deal brand. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool, man. And last question, if you could hear from anybody from the hash world on the podcast that hasn't been on before, who would it be? Gray Wolf. I don't think I'm familiar with them. It's not really a solventless guy, but he's one of the original OGs, bro. Yeah, that's cool, man. I definitely will put it down on my list and maybe you'll have to make the link. Yeah, he's just a, a very smart, interesting person. I think it would be a nice transition and a nice like con- contrast to some of the other guests. Oh, yeah, that's awesome, man. I appreciate the recommendation. I don't yeah. even know if he has a cell phone, but <laughs> even better, you know, we'd, we'd have to hunt him down. Or any kind of internet, but or any interest def- or any interest in talking to me, that's the other thing. He would definitely be a good one. And then uh to get more insight in the solventless hash market and what's going on with the lack of strains and what's going on with the input, you could get uh, uh, Addison on of Tur- Turpova. Addison, he'd be oh, a nice cool. uh, transition on like a bunch of information about the legal market and that side. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that's one of the groups that you're working with with the seeds from Little Valley. Right? Yep. 
Yeah, 800 pound mantra and the pyramid pipeline. All right, cool. Well, Taylor, man, it was a blast, dude. I appreciate you and all, all your time, as well as being, like I said, so honest and, and candid with us. Uh, I had a good time. I hope you did too. Yes, sir. Again, you can follow Taylor at T Beasel Farms on Instagram or at Little Lake Valley Seed Co. And we appreciate you sticking around with us this long, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you'd like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.